Genesis 2, 1 through 3. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day, and he declared it holy, because it was the day when he rested from all of his work. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy, heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and I will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and my burden I give you is light. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we'll again take a few minutes for guided silent prayer. It'll be a little bit different than it was last week. Uh, This week is a prayer of rest, and we will allow our breathing to help center us during this time. And I invite you to pay special attention to each breath As you inhale deeply, it may help um, to do that through your nose and exhale slowly through your mouth. And with every few breaths, I'll direct our focus. Would you pray with me? As we breathe in, allow God's spirit to fill you. Breathe out an offering of gratitude. Breathe in. Receive the blessing of God. Exhale. Confessing sin. Breathe in grace. Breathe out any thoughts that you have to earn God's love. Inhale. Receive the strength of our Lord. Exhale. Release your weakness, inadequacy, entrust them to God. Breathe in and accept the peace of Christ. Exhale and be cleansed of anxiety, worry, fear. Draw in the selfless love of Jesus. Breathe out. Release self-centeredness and self-worship. Breathe in and be filled with the truth of God's word. Breathe out a life-guided by that truth. Inhale, trust in the Lord with all your heart, 
Allow him to direct your steps. Exhale. Lean not on your own understanding. Breathe in. Invite humility. Let go of pride, ego, personal agenda. Inhale. Feel the tender care of God. Allow him to draw out of you any trace of anger. Breathe in. Be filled with the beautiful love of the Father. Breathe out. Share that same love with the world. Be still. Rest. Shalom. This is the second in our series on Sabbath prayer, based on the Sabbath prayer that we talked about last week that was really, in a sense, given uh, to Richard Foster by the Spirit. And it is those words that we have been repeating together, be still, rest, shalom. Say it with me one time, be still, rest, shalom. It was especially striking in the first service of it was really difficult for folks to pause in between <laughs> those words, those phrases, and it takes me back to what Richard Foster told us last week about how it's difficult for us to remain silent or have moments of silence. We'd rather have words because then we can be more in control. Uh, silence is more difficult to control, and yet we need to be able to enter into a different rhythm and be able to celebrate it and learn from it. Last week, we talked about being still. This morning, we talk about rest. As you know, in Genesis 2, as Caitlin read, God rested from his labors on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day. Did he do that because he needed rest? No, we do. Had God's people learned to rest then by Jesus' day thousands of years later? Well, no, <laughs> That's why he offers us that calming invitation that you find in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Well, now, do we heed those words today well enough? No, we don't. And there's so many different ways I could go, so many different angles from which we could observe the ways that we don't do that. But let me do this. What is the most frequently used noun in the English language? Does anybody know? Most frequently used noun in the English language. Some folks took stabs at it uh, in the last, uh, last worship time. Somebody thought it was no. 
which would be a good word to use more sometimes when we uh, have limitations. And then Bill Wad said, uh, yes, and I said, no, it's not, it's not yes. Um, anybody want to take a stab at it? What is the most frequently used noun in the English language? You know what it is? I heard it. Say it, Amy. Oh, no, it's not I. Personal pronouns don't count. I should have uh, did that. In fact, Greg Davis said I, and I said no, personal pronouns don't count. Just nouns. You know what it is? Time. The editors of the Concise Oxford Dictionary discovered through their studies that time is the most frequently used noun in the English, English language. Isn't that interesting? We can't stop talking about it. We obsess over it. Just go down any aisle of, of you know, books where you have the self-help titles. And these are interesting. It's fun just to, just to chronicle all those as you walk down the aisle. Here's some I found. Uh, one year to a college degree. Wouldn't that be nice, college students? Let's do another one. 30 days to a better life. How about another one? Seven days to a brand new me. Okay, okay, well that's nice. Maybe that's not enough. You, you want to be able to do it in even more concentrated time. Let's see, 60-minute marriage builder. Would that it were so. Uh, what's next? This is my favorite, the one-minute father. <laughs> what? The one-minute father, yes, it's that. It can be that simple. Uh, next one, 60-second stress management. The one-minute healing experience. What's another one? One-minute therapist, and then finally... 60 seconds to serenity. Oh, it just sounds so wonderful. But, you know, even if we could do some of those things, we're going to still feel like we don't have enough time and we're going to be stressed. We're going to feel like and we're, we're in a rush anyway, and we will still struggle to find moments of rest. I'm convinced of that. It's interesting, by the way, you have over 130 titles that use the word instant in the cover of the book. Everything from, I found instant Yiddish, there you go. We're all yearning for that. Instant Yiddish, instant emotional healing, instant time management. Christian publishing world, I think we're still kind of guilty of that too. This kind of obsession with time. 60 seconds with God. Prayers, 60 seconds long. And my favorite, instant sermons for busy pastors. Love that. Just add water and there you go. Well, no matter how instant it is, I'm convinced that we will still feel like we cannot find rest. Well, can we really find that rest that we so need and that we so crave? The answer is yes, and Scripture makes that very clear. Go to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. We've talked about this before, where the writer says, so there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world, because he wanted us to follow his example. So let us do our best to enter that rest. So let's go back to Jesus' calming invitation one more time. And I want you to notice this and notice what it says. And, and I want us to focus on the two directives that you find in here that Jesus offers us. Come to me, take my yoke. Come to me, take my yoke. Let's talk about come to me first of all in this verse. You notice he says, come to me. The word there in the Koine Greek really is come to me, and it means to me alone. Come to me and not to another. Come to me and to no one else, not to anything else, because nothing can, else can give you rest the way I can. And Jesus really magnifies the contrast between himself and everything else in the world by these other phrases that relate to him. Come to me, all of you. 
I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Let me teach. I am humble. My yoke is easy. I give you. The burden I give you is light. Now, Jesus is contrasting himself in context with whom? The religious leaders who were dumping all of these laws for the Jews to follow, and it was so burdensome, and most of them were just trying to get through the day and survive. But here are all these extra burdens of laws and rules to follow. But really, he is saying, you should come to me over anything, not just the law, but over anything, anyone, anything out there. Put me first and come to me. And again, so often these things can woo us away from him, these impediments to rest. And, 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 you know, sometimes we set lofty goals for ourselves, and that's fine. Lofty goals that might be whatever, you know, academic or success-related, money-related, things-related. Okay, sometimes they're even good. But whenever we begin to idolize those goals at the expense of, of Jesus, in other words, they take precedence over taking time to go to Jesus. That's when we pr- pay a great price for it. For whatever reason, I've read most everything that John Krakauer has written. He's a he's an, a kind of a, an obsessive writer, but really gets down to what's going on and looks at things in such a detailed fashion. And he really got put on the map, as many of you know, with his book called Into Thin Air, and it wound up being a movie. Actually, there have been two movies made about it. And, and it's about that ill-fated expedition up Mount Everest back in 1996. Krakauer was actually on uh, that team that went up. There was another member of that expedi- expedition named Yasuko Namba, and here's a picture of her a little bit. Uh, you can see that pretty well. And, and then uh, here's a picture, I think, of the entire Everest team that she was on. She is over here on the far right. She was an accomplished climber. She was a 46-year-old FedEx employee, but she was obsessed with climbing, just, just had this passion for it. She had already summited the other seven highest mountains in the world, and only the tallest one was waiting for her, and it was Everest. And she desperately wanted to summit Everest. That was her goal, so much so that Krakauer, in his book Into Thin Air, wrote this about her. He said, Yasuko was totally focused on the top. It was almost as if she was in a trance. She pushed extremely hard, jostling her way past everyone to the front of the line. She wanted to get to the top of Everest. Later that day, she made it. She accomplished her goal. She was the oldest person ever to make it to the highest point in the world. So that was all great. But later that afternoon, Yasuko and the other climbers got caught in a terrible blizzard, as you know. The icy winds blew, and she succumbed, along with a few others, to the climb, to the exhaustion of the climb, and froze to death. And she died agonizingly, and she also died agonizingly close to that which was her goal, that which was her greatest prize. And that kind of helps explain her tragic mistake. Let me quote Krakauer again. He said, Yasuko's fatal flaw was that she adopted the wrong goal. Yasuko's goal had been to get to the top of the mountain. What she wanted most was to stand at the top of the world, and all of Japan cheered her when she did. But this was the wrong goal, and a frequent and sometimes fatal mistake that climbers make. The goal of climbing should never be able to get to the top of a summit. Successful climbers know that the goal is not to get to the top. What is it? It is to get back down to the bottom. Well, the tragedy is that she accomplished her goal. Against a credible odd, she made it to the top. But as she poured out her energy to get to the top, she did not save enough strength to make it back down. 
she had adopted the wrong goal. Well, you and I can relate to that. We set goals, we, we, we set some task, we kind of uh, make a goal of some mountain, so to speak, whether it is success or, or academic prowess or things, or again, we said sometimes good things, but we do so often at the expense of our most precious goal, which Jesus invites us to, which is to come to him and find rest. Even when we're doing good things, even when we're striving to minister to other people, minister to each other, love each other, sometimes we overreach that goal, and we pay a price. I know I've quoted Wayne Oates many a time, who says that the optimum sign of someone who's doing ministry like a professional minister should is to know his or her limits. Has anybody ever been to the famed Pont d'Art Bridge in Paris? Has anybody ever been to that, seen it, know about it? Interesting place. This is where lovers go on this bridge and write their names on a padlock and and they share their love with one another and commit their love to one another and then they lock the padlock onto the side of the bridge on a rail and they throw the key into the Seine River and it's a wonderful romantic moment. Over one million locks have been attached to that bridge. It's a beautiful picture of love. The problem is all this love is starting to weigh the bridge down to the tune of 45 tons. Uh, This is a picture, I think, yeah, of the rails collapsing there, and then they started thinking, wow, the rails are collapsing, wondering if the whole bridge could, and they found out that, indeed, the bridge was getting weighed down and could have collapsed. And so some city officials with a lot less romantic view of the bridge sent in workers, and they took bolt cutters to lighten the load, and there they are getting rid of a lot of that. Well, you see where I'm going with that. Sometimes we commit our love to so many that our padlocks weigh us down. And in this goal of loving others and loving the world for Christ and reaching the world for Christ, sometimes we weigh ourselves down with exhaustion and burnout, and we don't rest as we should, and we pay that price. We need to be more faithful and trustful and and realize that, you know, you get out there, you do what you can, but then you rest in God and leave the rest to God. I like the way Dr. Robert McShane put it in uh, his book called The Overload Syndrome, Learning to Live Within Your Limits. And Dr. McShane is a Christian uh, doctor, uh, a Christian physician, I should say. And he said this, we must stop believing that chronic exhaustion is normal, that a listless spirit is inevitable, that burnout is piety. But rather, our goal is sustainability, service, passion, and joy. I think we've got to especially remember this during times when we are in crisis, along with trying to take care of all that we do in the course of a day, and then some storm of life comes along, and that leaves us all the more burdened and overwhelmed. And that really leads us to the second phrase, take my yoke. Take my yoke. Let's put verses 28 through 30 up there again. Let's just read through it one more time. Then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart. What does that mean? You study it in the Greek. It's not Jesus saying, I'm humble, you know. No, not at all. What he's saying is, I am prone, I am going to be less judgmental of you uh, than the religious leaders have been for so, so many years. You know, I'm not going to judge you for being so tired, so weary, so unable to live up to all those laws. That's what Jesus is saying there in context. And he says, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Now, the word there for weary says what it means. I mean, it's talking about someone who has had some burden placed upon them for quite some time. And when it says carry heavy burdens, there's an ongoing 
connotation there, saying this is a burden that someone has had for a time and has been carrying it for quite a while. I wonder if that might apply to you, something that you're carrying yourself in your own life. And so he talks about the term yoke, and I know we've heard a lot about the word yoke and what it means and everything. I want to focus on two interesting things that most any farmer who's used a yoke could tell you, but I find this interesting. You know, by the time Jesus came along, the word yoke was used quite frequently to refer to submission, sometimes to a teacher, to to a leader. But here Jesus uses the metaphor in a deeper way, which I think is so cool. First of all, note that the yoke was always designated for two animals, Two animals. So it brought the strength of two animals to some task, some job for which it would be impossible for just one animal to handle. One animal could not pull it on its own. So the point is clear here. Jesus is saying, I help you pull it. You don't have to pull it on your own. I will be there to help you. I can't help but think of the Holy Spirit, the word paraclete, where we get the word Holy Spirit, which means literally what? The one who walks alongside us. I think, think of that as I think of Jesus coming along to carry the burden with and for us. But secondly, the, the, the animals who were placed in that yoke, those two animals are different from each other. They were always careful to place one that was, that was uh, larger, stronger, more experienced than the other. And it was kind of a, 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 a discipler of the younger uh, ox or whatever it might be. And, and uh, they would go along, and this one would be the guide. This one would take up the slack for the one that was less experienced and needed guidance. Well, you see that point as well. Jesus takes our yoke for us and makes the travel lighter, but we need him to guide us and to help us at those points. Again, Jesus says, come to me if you are, to use the old translations, heavy laden, especially when you're facing some storm of crisis, and he will give you rest that no one else can, that nothing else can. You know, it reminds me of a story that we don't always apply to this subject of rest, and I really don't know why. Do you remember the story of Jesus uh, in the storm with the disciples going across the Sea of Galilee? The, the waves are whipping up, and it's a terrible, critical moment, and what is Jesus doing? You know, sleeping where? In the back of the boat. Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat, and he wakes from that slumber, that restful slumber, and you know what happens. He, he calms down the wind uh, and the sea. He says, be still, and there's a great calm And he turns to the disciples and says what? Why were you afraid? Have you no faith? I think in a different way he was saying, come to me. Come to me and you'll be fine. And I can't help but think of the disciples there. You know, at the moment they said what? Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Did they really know who Jesus was and what he was about? They didn't at that point. In fact, to be honest, they still didn't know fully what he was about after his resurrection. That's clear in Acts chapter 1. It isn't until Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost that the disciples suddenly get it. And I think post-Pentecost, I just can't help but think that some of the disciples, looking back on that moment when they were in that boat, thought to themselves, you know what, I shouldn't have been so panicked. I shouldn't have gone back there and said, please help us. Don't you care that we're perishing? I should have just slunk back there and got down there with them and, you know, taken it easy, rested, taken a nap. If I'd have known then what I know now, I should have had that much faith in him just to rest even amidst the storms and spend more time with him there in the back of the boat and rested. Even when the waves are tossing to and fro for you and me, we can trust in his sovereign power and grace. Again, 
Robert McShane puts it this way, you will never find Jesus so precious as when the world is one vast howling wilderness. Then he is like a rose blooming in the midst of the desolation, a rock rising above the storm. And you and I need to trust that word, especially when we're overwhelmed and need to rest. I've always found it interesting that through the centuries, Jewish rabbis, even Orthodox Jews today say that If only everyone would rest on the Sabbath, everybody together, and I mean everybody would just literally rest on the Sabbath. If everyone would rest on the Sabbath, the Messiah would come. (laughs) If only everybody would rest, the Messiah would come. And I love how Christianity has flipped that. The Messiah has come, therefore we all have the opportunity to rest. The Messiah is here. And we could take advantage of that rest, as the writer of Hebrews tells us to do. It's that wonderful verse in Psalm 62, verse 1, excuse me, verse 5, that says, Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from Him. And we can find rest here, and we can also muse on, savor that foretaste of eternal rest that is to come, Sometimes I can just almost taste that eternal rest in heaven. And I love the way that J.I. Packer, the great Puritan scholar, puts it. He says, hearts on earth say in the course of a joyful experience, I do not want this ever to end, but invariably it does. But the hearts in heaven say, I want this to go on forever, and it will. (laughs) There can be no better news than this and there isn't you can almost taste that eternal rest that awaits and so we can rest now let's pray together as our saint of the church augustine said oh god our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you but it takes our taking the time to find our rest in you. Help us each day, each week, during critical hours to simply take a few moments to be still and find you in that restful moment. We thank you for the rest you offer, especially when we are in this angst-laden world when in many ways anxiety is now... Uh, the new depression. It is impacting so many people, oh God, and we pray that we can be agents of rest for those who need it. If there's any way that we can be instruments of peace and rest to others, motivate us to do that. But even more so, help us to be examples just as you were our example resting on the seventh day. May we practice sevening each day of our lives that others might see you in us in that quiet center that we gain through rest. We pray these things in your name. Amen.